Welcome back to So Hot Right Now. I'm Lucy Siegel. And I'm Tom Mastill. Nature and climate stories are human stories. Where there are resources to extract and sell, like gold, oil, timber, ivory, humans can come into conflict with very uneven sides. Those who speak out against the destruction of our climate and living world can find themselves facing powerful forces who do not play fair. This episode of So Hot Right Now is about the dangers of speaking out. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. For environmental justice activists, working on the front lines of conflicts over land and resources, defending and organizing is dangerous and wearing. You can get sued, criminalized, you can get attacked, your family can be threatened. In some places, you can be murdered and disappeared. Reporting on these issues is the second most dangerous field of journalism after war reporting, but that is nothing compared to being an environmental justice activist. Hundreds of these people are killed every year. Much of the brunt of these conflicts is borne by indigenous peoples. The trees, rivers, minerals at the heart of many conflicts are often on their land. But the protection of the living world and the atmosphere that support all of us is all of our fight. And how we report on these conflicts is of huge importance. In this episode of So Hot Right Now, we speak to Crystal Tubals, an Oglala Lakota northern Cheyenne woman from Lame Deer, Montana. She has faced these issues on the front lines, for instance, in her work resisting the development of the Dakota Access Pipeline. She was also a soldier in the US Army. We wanted to know what we can do to protect ourselves and one another if we want to work in this space and to understand how the stories we tell and the words we use can have powerful, deadly consequences. Welcome, Crystal, to So Hot Right Now. Thank you so much for being with us today. This is an episode that we've been wanting to uh, get into from the very inception of the podcast. Perhaps it would be best if you introduced yourself and, and then we could take it from there. Yeah, uh, just thank you so much for, for the opportunity to share and for inviting me to be here. Pebeshev, Mene Wostat Nanehev. My name's Crystal Tubles, my English name. Um, I'm Oglala Lakota, Northern Cheyenne. I live in southeastern Montana on the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation, and I am currently the director of Voices of the Sacred. Our mission is to develop the next generation of healthy organizers from Native veterans and from Native youth in our community. Our hopes is to, to build a template that could then be used not only in our communities, but all Native communities. Um, and I'm also a member of uh, About Face, Veterans Against War. So I, I definitely carry an anti-militarist, anti-imperialism um, and decolonial framework when I speak about things. So thank you. Brilliant. Uh, I think a lot of our audience will be from the UK and uh, so might have a bit of catching up to do to, uh, to understand a bit more about what, what your work is and, and why it's important. So uh, I think probably the, the thing that most people would have heard of is the Dakota Access Pipeline. And uh, that's certainly 
something that I've been following with interest and has been, you know, I think developing by the week. Um, would would you tell us a bit more about that and about the um, the conflict that you've been involved in there and and what your role has been? Yeah. So Dakota Access Pipeline, um, you know, is just one of many pipelines that have been set to be built either right next to or on native lands here in the um, so-called U.S. And Dakota Access Pipeline, it was one of those events where um, it was a lot of like timing in, in a lot of moving pieces, in a lot of organizing energy that had already existed, in a lot of fights that had already existed, just happened to all converge at the same time. Um, and that's where we see, you know, thousands of people converging into uh, North Dakota and coming together to protect the water. Um, so the big thing with Dakota Access Pipeline is that it was originally proposed to go through Bismarck, uh, but the residents of Bismarck, who were not Native American or mostly people of color, um, had actually... Uh, petitioned against it because they were afraid that it would actually impact their drinking water in the city. And so energy transfer partners then turned and moved the pipeline route uh, onto um, onto basically uh, Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's territory. So it wasn't the actual reservation, but it was actually the territory that was um, granted and in, in actually allowed in the Fort Laramie Treaty. So it's treaty land. And then that treaty was broken by the United States government to get access to more lands. And then there was an updated um, treaty after that. And so the land that all of the dispute happened on, um, where the Ocheti Shakoe camp happened, was actually um, was actually treaty land. That was, that was our territory. Um, and then even pre- United States project, you know, that had always been our territory. And so they moved the pipeline route onto that land right next to residents of the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And so when we started to fight and to say that this could potentially impact our drinking water, then we were just ignored and erased, um, which is actually part of a longer um, colonial process here in the United States, you know, colonization, um, to me and the way I speak about it is like the three main components of colonization is, is basically to, to silence us. If they can silence us, silence us, then they just erase us. Um, if we don't get erased, then we're just, we're dismissed. Like we can exist, but you're, you're kind of dismissed and like mm -hmm. pushed to the side. Um, and so we see that play out in pipeline battles. And we've seen it play out at the Dakota Access Pipeline um, when we started to petition and to say that, no, like we don't want it here because it could impact the drinking water. And then we were just ignored. One of the things that stands out for me is that you don't call yourself an activist. You call yourself an organizer. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Why is that? And are labels important in this context? Yeah, so... My role um, at Standing Rock was as an organizer, um, you know, in, in mainstream organizing terms. And so here's, as far as like um, my toolkit 
<laughs> in the way I speak about things, right? Like there, there's institutional organizing, which I've, I've labeled it that, like this is just something I've made up in my own organizing world, but that's mainstream organizing, right? So it's this, this idea that we have to or, only organize through the nonprofit industrial complex or that we have to be paid organizers to do the job or that there's these templates that we can establish in place on every fight that we come to. Um, I don't operate like that. I got into organizing um, before I was born. You know, I, w- I was born into this. My, my people have a long-standing resistance um, to colonization, to oppression. I descend from several chiefs um, of the Oglala Lakota my, my father is one of the Council 44 chiefs here for the Northern Cheyenne. Um, I come from Chief Gall, who was one of the master strategists at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Um, and so I, I lean into a lot of that, and, and I was raised with those teachings. So when I reference organizing, I'm not talking about being paid to do this job, that this is a job that needs to be done. I am talking about my inherent right as a Native woman, as an Oglala woman, as a Northern Cheyenne woman who was born into this world to be a steward of this land. That is a specific thing. Those are my original instructions. And human beings are the only beings that walk this earth that that get our original instructions confused and that forget that. Um, But my job being here on this earth is to steward the land and to be in relationship with the land and everything else that I am blessed to experience in this life is just that it's a blessing. Um, and so that's the way I operate. That is one of the core, uh, principles and values that I organize from. Um, and then organizing comes from the fact that an entire nation was placed on, on built over the top of my ancestors' dead bodies. Um, And so people can only take so much oppression (laughs) before you you adapt and you learn and you grow and you develop skill sets and you gain experiences and knowledge to be able to try to reconnect back to what your original instructions are. So I'm not fighting and organizing to get access to power are to leverage power and shift power. I'm organizing so that my human self can be more aligned with my spirit self. Um, And that when I pass away and I cross over the Milky Way, the way my people believe, that I can honestly look at my ancestors and say that I fought with everything I had to maintain that relationship to the land. Um, And that is like a core um, of why I do what I do. And I don't call myself an activist and, and this gets at the labels and, and the language and the way we speak about things, right? Is because, like, yes, activists and activism came about as, as a way to say that we are actively doing something, right? We are actively um, engaging in, in a resistance or in something to push back on that, mm. right? But it's been co-opted. Um, our oppressors have co-opted the term and mainstream media uses the words activists and activism as, as almost like a slur or a slander. And they've taken that word and they've turned it into something that is negative. Um, 
And maybe that's not everywhere. That may not be everywhere. But I mean, when you look in the media and you see, um, oh, um, seven activists, uh, seven activists were killed in um, the Philippines this week, or, you know, all of these different articles that we see, it's it's always attached to that negativity. Um, and so I called myself an organizer because that's what I do. Um, I organize, I, I coordinate and I, I make connections, I build relationships, I, I build our um, collective energy to be able to try to get back to that in original instruction, to be able to defend the land, to be able to protect the land. Um, and so in my mind, that, that is just more descriptive of what I actually do mm-hmm. versus activism, because um, anyone can be active. Anyone can just like actively do something, but is what you're doing effective? Is what you're doing grounded in principles? Does it have integrity? Um, Is it moving you in a direction of your original instructions? Um, And so that's why I I sort of choose to call myself an organizer as opposed to an activist. Um, And then circling back a little bit of the conversation about my role at Standing Rock, um, I honestly don't talk too much about it because of the lawsuit, but that in itself is a direct response to the lawsuit in me internalizing this idea that I did something wrong because I was sued for racketeering for simply trying to have clean water for my people. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And what happens is when, when, when they sue activists and organizers and they go after us, not only is it a strategic way for them to like prevent us from doing the work and to deter other people from doing this work too. But also there is an emotional and um, spiritual impact on us. And no one talks about that impact. Like, yes, um, the murder of, uh, in the disappearing of organizers and activists around the world, right. Especially environmental justice activists. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there's the criminalization of us, right? And like that, these are, those are through a colonizer's uh, legal process. The law in itself was designed to uphold certain people's rights. In, in a lot of systems, most specifically in the United States, those systems were, our government, our legal system, our education system were designed to advance certain people but not native people, not people of color. Um, and so looking at that, they, them doing that to us um, is a very real threat, right? That's a very real threat um, and a very real impact of organizing and activism. Um, but who, I who, take it... Oh, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Who, who sued you and, 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 what, and why? And what does racketeering mean? Sorry, so I think... I've, so... Yeah. So uh, just to be clear, as I as we go forward, like when I talk, like I I will get to those things like it kind of takes like I need I need you to understand the like the uh, the spectrum of what's going on and like the whole picture of what's going on to understand, though, like you get to those things. So sorry. Oh, sorry. I should have yeah. said that from the start. Like I've I've done several interviews where I've I forgot to mention I kind of speak like I talk a lot <laughs> in those, no, but it, it yeah. takes me a second. But I will get to like the meat of those questions. And yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not to say don't interrupt me, but I'm just saying um, I, I definitely am tracking the <laughs> <Brilliant. Yeah. laughs> tracking the original question. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Um, so Energy Transfer Partners sued me for racketeering for my role of organizing at Standing Rock. And we were able to get those charges dismissed. And we were able to beat that, um, but not without a toll. So now I'm, I'm in the process of healing from the impact of that lawsuit because I questioned myself. Even doing this interview, I touched base with my lawyers and I was like, hey, like I have this coming up. Is it okay if I say this? Is it all right if I say that? There is no damn reason for me to have to ask permission to share what I need to share about my life. But for some reason, this lawsuit has, has conditioned me to respond in that way, thinking that what I did was illegal, but it was not illegal. It was my well within my First Amendment, right? Within their legal framework, not my legal framework, their legal framework. Um, and so, yeah, so there's the other impacts. And, and there's like a little story that one of my good friends, his dad is, is one of the most prominent um, figures in in the American Indian movement um, in Indian country and he passed away from cancer and I remember talking to him one time and he told me he was like they killed my dad and I was like what is he talking about like his dad passed away from cancer and so I was like at the time I was I was um, you know still finding my way through all of everything and he was like no they killed my dad and now, having gone through this lawsuit, I know exactly what he's talking about. The emotional and um, behavioral and spiritual and mental toll that these kind of lawsuits take on your, your person is a lot. Um, the day that my lawyers called me and said that we the charges were dismissed, that the lawsuit was dismissed and we beat them, um, we just held out long enough and we fought back enough Um I all of a sudden had all of this energy and I was like, oh man, like I, I need to do this and I need to do this. And I, I, I all of a sudden had the energy to actually focus on so many things that I hadn't been able to focus on for the entirety of the lawsuit. And that is how they get you. So not only do they criminalize you in their legal system, not only can they literally murder you and disappear you in some places, but also they come at you from the, from from an angle um, that you just don't expect. And, and that is spiritually and, and mentally and emotionally. And the burden that that takes on organizers is a lot. Um, we have high burnout rates. Um, environmental justice activism and activists, like our, our longevity is not very long um, before people hit burnout. But the thing about it is that we, we can't afford not to organize. We can't afford to not do that um, because there's way more at stake than than just our well-being. Um, and that's part of the sacrifice. You know, that's part that's part of the work, unfortunately. Um, and we all do our best to find our find our ways through that and navigate that in the healthiest way possible, um, which is why, you know, with my organization, I do have a heavy emphasis on creating and developing healthy organizers. Because I need these young people and these veterans that I'm working with to know that this is really difficult work. And, and there is no end in sight for this work. We, we don't retire. Organizers don't retire. Um, there's no retirement fund at the end of this for us. Uh, most especially people of color, indigenous peoples. Um, 
there's already a lack of resources that flow into our community just to address the basic symptoms of oppression, let alone trying to organize to prevent those symptoms in the first place. Um, and so we don't retire from this. So I need, I need the people that I am trying to develop into organizers to be healthy and to have healthy ways of managing all of this for if and when they get lawsuits, they get sued, um, and they confront these same things. Do, do you think that um, it's so difficult to? I mean, so you're you're facing uh, if you're if you speak up for the natural world or land uh, around the world, like risks, like to your person of being disappeared or killed or attacked or threatened. Uh, you're risking criminalization and being imprisoned or fined or being caught up in litigation. But this other thing of of bait of being sort of spiritually and emotionally like uh, depressed um, from it is it do you think that that comes in part from so much of your identity if you're trying to defend like your land and nature comes from feeling like you are doing the right thing like you're like what you talked about before your motivation and then to have a label on you of of you know some wrongdoer is 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 so jarring is that part of it I mean, I definitely think so. I mean, as much as people want to to act like what others think of us and say of us doesn't impact us, it does. You know, the, it's it's, it's our, our basic, the kid in us, you know, of, of when people say something about us and they, they talk behind our back or put labels on us, it impacts us. Um, you know, you have to be, you have to really develop the resiliency factors in your own life and your own well-being to be able to confront those things, right? Um, and I think that's that's a big component of organizing too that has to be um, emphasized a little bit more than I think it currently is in mainstream organizing is um, our resiliency factors because it does, it still hurts, it still wounds when people say things, um, you know? And so I, I think... Yeah, I definitely think that that impacts us. I mean, I guess if you work for like, I don't know, one of the really big NGOs like WWF or Greenpeace or I don't know, Friends of the Earth, you're unlikely to be sued personally, right? But this is so personal. You're so isolated with this work and vulnerable. Yeah, and I think like, I think um, company, so the company, the... Um, the lawyer, the legal team that is representing energy transfer partners in this is actually one of uh, the firms that also represents President Trump um, now and again. And so <laughs> it's really interesting <laughs> when I found that out because um, they really play dirty. I mean, they they submitted actual legal uh, documents and just blatantly lied on those and it was like yeah it was a little mind-blowing to see how that's a thing like people can just lie and um just do that um but yeah sorry I got a little sidetracked no, by no, <laughs> but, like, but with the lawsuit was it did do you think that they were intending to sue you because they felt that you had broken the law no I think it was a slap um a slap suit so I think it was very strategic it was it was definitely because um, Standing Rock was major. Um, no Dapple was a major global movement. I mean, we we launched the No Dapple Global Solidarity campaign out of Standing Rock because 
um, I had seen this isn't just an indigenous person's fight. This isn't just the um, Standing Rock Sioux tribe's fight. This is actually a fight um, for the world because as I always said, and like you'll actually see this in some of the legal documents is like I was quoted always saying like if you live on this land and you breathe this air and you drink water to live your life, then this is your fight because they will not stop there. They will not stop at Standing Rock. The Code Access Pipeline will not stop. That will not be the only pipeline. And I mean, they're trying to expand the Code Access Pipeline right now, push more barrels of oil through every day. We have the Keystone XL Pipeline that is actually supposed to be starting construction within the month here in Montana, despite COVID-19, um, despite the dangers of man camps and missing and murdered Indigenous women. We have the Line 3 fight up in Minnesota. We have the Bayou Bridge Project down in Louisiana. Um that we have all of the pipelines of Oklahoma. I mean, there are so many there that I can't even name. Um, so there, there's so many fights, like pipeline fights, that in the companies that own um, the companies that own these pipelines, in the construction companies that back them, and the security firms that are brought in to protect the interests of that pipeline and protect them from from organizers that are just trying to protect the water, they are um, international companies. They they aren't just from the United States. And so one of the biggest things about that was it had to be a global fight because that same company, that same firm, that same um, construction company they will go to other countries and they will be working in those other countries simultaneously to doing the work here. Um, and that's how we built our relationship so strong globally is because we, we would name a construction firm or a security firm and, and we would have other organizers from other movement spaces say like, we're, we're facing them too. Um, G4S, all of them. And so it's like there, there's these connections and these intersections that we came across and we realized like if we really want to, um, to prevent the, the pollution of our water and if we really want to prevent climate change, it has to be a global movement. We can't operate in silos um, as movements. And so Standing Rock did that, right? Standing Rock definitely brought so many people together that I don't think would have come together naturally had that not happened. Um, and one of the greatest, even though, you know, there's always this debate about whether or not we won that fight. Um, like, yeah, the pipeline was built. Like, we did not win that part of it. But one of the most powerful things that came out of Standing Rock was that every person that came there was invested. They had a personal connection to what was happening. They were politicized while they were there. They gained organizing skills and nonviolent direct action skills, and they gained the experience of being in relationship to indigenous peoples, the original peoples of this specific land. Um, and then when, it, when everything dispersed, they all went home and they started organizing in their own communities. And you don't stop a movement like that. Once people are awake, you can't, you can't turn that around. Um, and so I think that was one of the most powerful things that came out of Standing Rock was, was planting those seeds in people. I want to ask you about the media, Crystal. Were they awake? Do you feel, I mean, it's such a, um, there are so many different elements that could be covered. So you, you talked, 
you talked about a lot of them just then. I mean, you, you even talked about violence against women, murders. I mean, there are, you could spend your life as a journalist just reporting on this. Do you think that you, were you aware of the coverage? Did it help you? Did you get enough? What was the tone of it? What is your relationship with the media? You know, it depended. Um, like we, in general, like that's where we were, they would call us protesters, right? Um, and they would call us activists. And again, it was that negative um, connotation attached to it. But, and that was mainstream media. That was definitely local media in North Dakota. I mean, North Dakota is just a horribly racist state in general. Um, and so they, the media definitely was not in our favor. But we had such a, such a strong um, coalition of groups and organizations there that we, were, we worked very hard and very intentionally to shift the narrative um, to being called protectors and defenders instead of protesters and activists. Um, and that humanized us a bit, especially in a time where... Um, you know, where, where people across the country were actually organizing and hosting different actions, you know, like shutting down interstates or, you know, um, blocking traffic, things like that in support of us, like solidarity actions across the country, across the globe, really. Um, and we would hear things of people being ran over. Um, in, in the only thing that allows one human being to run over another human being is that they did not see that other person as a human being. They were dehumanized because they were being labeled activists and protesters. And so that, that language and that, that way of talking about what we do dehumanizes us and it allows for us to be criminalized. It allows for us to be disappeared. It allows for, um, for us to be criminalized, uh, disappeared, and it allows for us to just to be able to be pushed aside and continue to be erased and ignored um, and to not do our jobs. And so it was really important that we had that narrative shift of, of moving over to water protectors and land defenders because that changes the whole tone, but it humanizes us. It actually like puts it back in a framework of like, oh, these are human beings, people who live off the land and who drink the water. And that, that, is, um, that was a lot of work. Most people, when they're talking about... Um, United States history, like U.S. history, like they only go back to, to the U.S.'s inception, right? Like July 4th, 4th of July, all that. But the reality is, is that the history on this land predates that. I mean, it goes, it goes way back. And I have stories, origin stories that go way back to that time frame. And I am still connected to that. Um, my history doesn't start when the U.S. was, was formed. Um, and so, I say that because on this land, in, in the so-called United States, the United States was, was built on top of the colonization of the land. So it wasn't even the people at first. We were, how do I say this? So, so, the, so the doctrine of discovery um, allowed for, right? Allowed for um, lands that did not have Christian people um, to be able to be, um, claimed for the right of that kingdom or queendom, right? Um, and so 
that's where I always start from whenever I'm talking about like the history and the colonization of this land, because that's what allowed for that to happen here, right? And then that manifested into like manifest destiny. And then that manifested into eminent domain. Eminent domain is still used for pipeline fights to claim access to lands um, to be able to build a pipeline and say it's like it's for the benefit of the country. It's like it's eminent. Um, and so those are still legal structures in place. But all of that was access to the land. And so that is so key to know is that this country was like founded on the attempted genocide of an entire group of people because they wanted access to these lands and to the resources that this land held. Um, and we were in the way of that. And so as Native peoples, that's, that's what the colonial process was. It was constantly moving us and murdering us and, and ignoring us and erasing us to just maintain access to the land. Um, and that, that was what this country was founded on. And that template that they used, because it started off where they, just, they first thought they could just move us all to Indian territory in Oklahoma, right? So if they just pushed us off of our traditional territories all together in Oklahoma, then they would have access, free access to this land. But they didn't account for how strong of a warrior culture we were. They didn't account for how strong we would fight. Um, and so we continued to fight. We continued to resist. And so when the wars, the Indian wars, didn't kill us all off, they tried biological warfare and they delivered blankets with smallpox to us. And when smallpox didn't wipe us out, they then were like, oh, okay, well, we'll just give them little tracts of land and then we'll teach them how to farm in a European manner that wasn't applicable to us on our lands because we had been farming for generations. Um, then they tried to do that. And then they introduced the concept of land ownership to us when they introduced farming and agriculture as well. Um, and then when they couldn't, defeat us that way and have free access to the land and resources they then took our children they kidnapped our children and they took all of them and they put them in residential boarding schools away from us and so during their formative years when they were supposed to be learning love when they were supposed to be learning what it means to be a mom or to be a dad to be a good relative to be in community with each other um they were learning rape they were learning violence they were learning that their culture equaled violence, that speaking their language equaled a beating, that um, being who they were equaled death. And so that was the single most um, damaging blow to our resistance, I think. Um, and that was the biggest component of the colonial process with us. But what they then did after they did that um, you know, we're still resisting, but we're also now having to simultaneously uh, learn how to organize and heal from historical trauma at the same time to do this work. So not only am I like dealing with my own personal lawsuit and whatnot, I'm also dealing with the historical trauma that was handed down generation to generation from grandparents that suffered and survived residential boarding schools. Um, but a big significant thing that makes this a global issue <clears throat> is that the template then, that process, that colonial process then was taken and used as a template to go to other countries, to other lands, and to get access to those resources. Um, 
And, and that is what we now experience as U.S. imperialism. And so it's important to understand the, the full history of that. So when I talk about militarism, um, because I'm a veteran, and that, that was also a long, <laughs> a long healing journey as well, being a Native woman and a veteran, um, militarism, the U.S. military was formed around indigenous resistance on these lands. Like it, where, where bases exist now, where, where forts were and the forts were strategically placed there because it was next to nations that had the largest resistance to be able to squash that resistance and to squash the organizing there. Um, and so the military in itself, the names of their equipment, names of missions, names of like helicopters and vehicles, all of that is named after our tribes. And that's not for honoring us. That is not to like pay respect to us. That is to continue to dehumanize us and continue to oppress us. And so that process, militarism was birthed there. U.S. militarism was birthed there. And then it continues out and it was the enforcer of colonization. And now with U.S. imperialism, the U.S. military is also the enforcer of U.S. imperialism. So corporations can get access to the resources freely without the indigenous peoples in the protectors and the defenders that exist on those lands. Um, so it's important to understand that the full history of, of what brought us to the place that we're in now, not just in the United States, but globally, um, because this is, this is just one place, right? This is just one battle. The Dakota Access Pipeline was just one incident and it is not unique. Um, but the other thing I guess I will know about that, because that all of that sounds so um, overwhelming. Uh, <clears throat> but the one thing is that my story is not unique. My organizing is not unique. I am, I am the norm. I am one of millions of people that are organizing to defend and to protect the land and the water. Um, and I think in telling your story... Um, it is not to exceptionalize my actions, right? Like in sharing my story, it's not to exceptionalize what I did. It's to normalize my choices and my actions because this should be the norm for every person that depends on the air and the water and the land to survive. This should be our norm. This story should be everybody's story. Um, and there's a lot of people out there that this is their story. Um, so just making note that like that, my story is not unique. I am not the exception. Um, I am one of millions of people. Um, and I think it's important to note that because separating me out from, from people as the exception also makes me a target, right? It makes it easier for companies like energy transfer partners to come at me. Um, and so it's important to not exceptionalize, but it, it is important to tell your story to continue that normalcy of this, right? That That's a very um, media technique, isn't it? It's a kind of traditional technique is to exceptionalize, strip away complexity and push one person's story out there. Did you have to push back against that? Oh yeah, yeah. From the start, um, even even with with native people, right? Like even other native media people, um, even with my legal team, you know. And and so everyone around me that that wanted to have uh, 
access to my story and what happened with the code access pipeline and my my lawsuit around with racketeering um everyone wanted to exceptionalize me into and I remember at one point there was an interview that was where someone had they had sent me what they were writing beforehand so I could approve it and they had said that I was um one of the main organizers or one of the most um something organizers on the ground at San and I'm like that's not true. <laughs> That's not even anywhere uh, close to being true. Um, and so I definitely had to very intentionally think about who I interviewed with um, and make sure that I had access to the interviews before they were released. Because one, I was obviously very aware of the lawsuit and what I say can be used against me. Um, but two, because I don't want to be exceptionalized. Like I, I That's not even the reality. Standing Rock was comprised of so many beautiful and powerful people um, and so many more that were way more impactful than my choices and my decisions. Um, I just happened to be the one that was targeted. Um, And so, yeah, I think I I definitely have to be very intentional on on my story and on media and um, who I share and how I share and not being separated out from my people. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Did you, um, in terms of the sort of people that you did speak to and trust to share your story and communicate what was happening, what, what was what was it? Was it a personal relationship? Was it a particular type of journalism that worked better? So was it people who were embedded with you? So how did it work best? You know, one of one of the core principles that I operate from with organizing is around relationship building. So we hear a lot of like conversation around um, coalitions, right, and coalition building and allies and uh, partners. But I am very intentional about who I organize with. Um, I want a genuine, real relationship with those people. I I won't work with just like random people that want to jump in because, I mean, that's security culture, right? Like that's how we keep ourselves safe. But also like it predates this like institutional organizing where that's genuine relationship building. Um, I'm really close with uh, Palestinian organizers and and, um, Native Hawaiian organizers and their fights are literally my fights. There's no separation between those struggles. Um, excuse me. Because our relationships are so, so strong, whatever I do, um, conversations about Hawaiian liberation is part of what I do, in addition to Indigenous sovereignty here. Um, wherever I go, whatever I'm doing, Palestinian liberation and freedom is part of what I do because those relationships are so strong. Like those are my relatives. 
I will refer to people as relatives as opposed to coalition partners or allies. I don't want allies. I don't want partners. I don't want coalitions in that way. I want genuine, real relationships. So in reference to the media that you're talking about and how I went about doing interviews, um, you know, it would be like if a close person to me recommended something and they were like, hey, like this person wants to do an interview. Like I, I trust them. I know them because I trust that person. I would most likely do that interview. Um, and so it's it's not only security culture, but it's also genuine relationship building. Most people I've interviewed with or, um, you know, done storytelling with or um, shared with or any of that, like I'm still close with them because like that, like I don't want to just give a story and have people take, like how, how do I help you? How do we have this mutual relationship? How do we build that so that way we are all in this together and invested together to get to a better world, a more just world, to prevent climate change. Um, and to me, that is the only way that we win this, is by genuine, true relationships. Not allyship, not coalition, not partners, but by genuine relationships, where my struggle then becomes your struggle because we are in relationship with each other. Um, and that very much pertains to media. That very much pertains to who who you give access to your energy, um, who you give access to your story, right? That is significant. And I think people need to think about it that way. They need to think about it as an exchange of energy um, versus just a, telling a story, right? Um, storytelling is powerful, but can you imagine if you put it in the context of like um, energy sharing? That is like a whole different level of thinking about it. And how would you respond to people who approached you saying that they needed to tell both sides of the story or that their um, news organization had rules on objectivity? I probably wouldn't interview with them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a long-standing history of a certain set of people who get to tell the story, right? Um, And so their time's passed. Like that, we're not in that time anymore. So no, I don't have to allow space and I don't have to allow my story to go alongside someone else's story who is trying to oppress me and who doesn't respect my existence as a native person on this land. I don't have to do that. I can save my energy for someone else that that has respect for that. It's good to know you're alert to the false balance, which um, we often come up against. Yeah. Give it, yeah, giving, yeah. Giving that equal weight. I was visiting with uh, one of my coworkers. Her, I used to work with her at About Face Veterans Against War. Um, we were co-directors of the organization, and uh, she said one of my my strongest gifts that um, she is starting to wanting to embody more was to really um, know what my true north is, and to have a firm, um, like a firm like no bullshit policy, where like. I don't have to give you any more of my time. I don't even have to give you an explanation. Um, if you want more, like you can do that work. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just one of those things where I've I've become really good at um, at knowing when I don't have to give more of myself and knowing when I want to give, you know, and when I when I genuinely feel like it could be a good thing. Um, 
And so, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that balance because shit's not balanced anyways. Mm. <laughs> That's part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to people who are in similar position to you, who'd be listening to this, who might be facing uh, dangerous uh, or, lit- uh, or facing litigation or facing people reframing them and changing the words that are used to describe them or their stories or their land? One is take care of yourself is like the biggest thing. Um, We don't take care of ourselves. We don't do this work. And you can't pour from an empty cup. Uh, My dad always tells me that. And so like if, if I have nothing to give, then I have no business doing this work and I am then a liability to the work. Um, and I don't want to be a liability. So therefore, like, I have to take care of myself. Um, the other part about that is that <clears throat> if we can't embody and live sovereign now, then why are we fighting for sovereignty? Like, why are we fighting for freedom when we ourselves cannot embody that currently Sovereignty is not something that I'm fighting for way up there ahead that someone can grant me. I am sovereign. I get to say what I do. I get to say how I live, how, how I carry myself in this life. Um, so we have to take care of ourselves and we have to live that, right? And the other thing I would say is um, focus on your true relationships. Don't like definitely be mindful of who you allow into your space and who you share energy with. Um, because not everyone has the best intentions and not all best intentions turn out in the best way. Um, and so if you're in genuine relationship with people in, in, and you literally share struggles, um, then you're less likely to, uh, succumb to like, pressures um you're less likely to stumble because someone's right there to help walk with you and and to pick you up um I think develop a set of principles because this work has to be principled and it can't be principles based on on um whatever organization you're working for like we have to have our own um personal set of principles and we have to operate in a principled way. Otherwise, we adopt the ways of our oppressors. And, and I refuse to do that. I refuse to behave and act and respond based on how my oppressors treat me or how they behave and act and respond, right? Um, and so having a set of principles that I follow and I maintain for how I move in this world and how I move in organizing spaces um, is really important. Um, I don't know. I think those are kind of the three main ones that, that I would start. say for now. I could probably elaborate on a bunch, but, <laughs> but I think those are like the three that really, um, to stand, that really stand out to me. Krista, I'd just like to ask you also, we, we, we talk about, talked about a militarization, you know, there's so much of this is like a war, like a war of what words get to be chosen, but you know, you were, in was it the army that you were in yeah um and and now i think some of the most powerful images that i've seen one of some of the most startling images i remember from watching these protests a drone footage of of essentially like almost military equipment being brought to bear on civilians who are uh, trying to protect their land you know water Mm -hmm. cannons people who looked like they were going into battle 
uh, against unarmed people with um, tear gas and dogs and 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 almost like tanks and weaponry. Um, it could you just talk a bit about what it's like to? I mean, that it's terrifying looking, um, and I think most people in the UK would be surprised uh, to see other sort of, I guess, global north like uh, inverted commas economically developed countries having battles like that with their own citizens yeah every major movement that has built any kind of power or momentum in the united states has had the u.s military called in on them every movement um they and they've they've been shut down my own people we have the standoff at um at Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. So I'm I'm half Oglala, half Northern Cheyenne. I'm currently on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Montana, but my mom's side of the family is from Pine Ridge, Oglala, Lakota people. And, and Wounded Knee is an, an infant, infamous standoff during the American Indian Movement era. Um, and we had tanks called into our reservation and the military was, was um, deployed. Um, so I... As far as like militarism goes, like I, I definitely organize around that a lot because I won't go into it too deep because mil- if I get into like my journey on militarism and healing and whatnot, it, it's a long journey, right? Uh, because being a Native woman and being a veteran is a very complex identity. Whenever you talk about how the military was used as the enforcer of colonization and is currently still being used as the enforcer in the tool of imperialism, right? Um, I was part of that. I, I signed up for that. Um, but I think along, and I can't speak for every veteran that I work with that is like an organizer in, um, in this place that I'm in, but a lot of us feel guilt and shame for our role in enlisting in the U.S. military. Um, And you can't operate from a place of shame and guilt and do this work. And so I had to really dig deep and reconcile within myself and heal that part of myself. And now I'm at the point where I work very specifically to translate military skill sets, knowledge, and experience over to community organizing and nonviolent direct action. Um, We have to learn how to take what we were trained in and invest that back into our communities. Um, And and I think that helps offset a lot of like that guilt and that shame. Um, Yeah, and so I I definitely, um, when I think about militarism, when Standing Rock happened in the, in um, the National Guard was called in and a state of emergency was declared because we were trying to protect water and we were trying to prevent water from being um, contaminated. Um, it's ridiculous. But that is what the U.S. does. Um, we have such a strong uh, veteran mystique in in military industrial complex culture in the United States that people actually think that is that is okay that it it is okay to use the U.S. military who is trained to kill right like that is that is our job is to kill um to deploy 
to go meet unarmed civilians who are simply trying to protect water um, or deploy them to the border um, to women and children who are just simply trying to be safe. Um, it's ridiculous. And uh, a lot of the work that I do is, is to call attention to that because in the United States, there's not very many people that can actually call out the military and not get attacked for it and to not be considered unpatriotic or to not be an attack on the veterans, um, except veterans. Veterans can do that. We know what that shit was like. Uh, we know the inner workings. And so we, those of us that have woken up to that, have a responsibility to leverage our privilege as veterans in this country to call that out and to call attention to that. Um, and so we are currently working on a, a campaign to repeal the authorization for the use of military force, right? Which is U.S. Um, legislation that basically allows the president to just go to war whenever the hell he feels like it. Um, and so that has what is what has kept us in a long-standing war for the global war on terror, right? Is that specific um, policy or legislation? And so we are actually organizing um, to have that repealed. And so. If we if we can make it more difficult to go to war, then um, hopefully we won't be going to war, and we will actually like be able to bring troops home. Um, but also, that is one step closer for us to look at our U.S. budget, right? The U.S. spends the most on the U.S. military than the next thirteen countries combined, um, and that shit is ridiculous. If we just if we only cut uh, military aid to Israel. I mean, like we could address the universal healthcare system here in the United States. Um, and that's just one little chunk of the U S uh, military budget. And so I think like if we repeal the AMUF, that helps get at and address the fact that we are deploying the, the largest and, you know, quote unquote, most powerful military in the world on our own people. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's multiple things going on there with, when it comes to militarism and there's so much more to it. Um, but in general, that, that is kind of some of our work and ways that we're trying to address that as one developing veteran organizers, um, two repealing the AMUFs, three getting at the U S budget, right? Because our values are reflected in the budget. What is important to us is in our budget. And what we are telling the world right now as the United States is that we value killing. We value access, free access to uh, resources and land. And we value the oppression of the peoples that are there to defend that land. Um, that's what our budget says. That's where our values lie. Um, and that is part of the military industrial complex, um, which... I'll stop there because I could keep going like down a rabbit hole when it comes to the mic. <laughs> but, I, but I think it's fascinating that what you what you honed in on is that you have this the, you know this powerful military in the most you know in in the world's most powerful most militarized nation being deployed, and you're facing that, which is terrifying, and and yet only not everybody is allowed to criticize that military. So who gets to talk about that? Um, is is other military veterans like who's allowed to have an opinion on that? Who people will listen to about that? 
so so just on that point because i think that's just so um insightful so fascinating do you think that can you see that changing so in terms of who gets to talk about these issues do you feel that change is going to come that we are going to be at a point when different voices get to talk about different issues yeah we have to we don't win unless we start to do that um like I mean, just like <laughs> at the risk of using a lot of like very military terms is like we do not win the war as individuals and like individuals, not necessarily as like me, myself, but individuals as in individual movements. Right. So the environmental justice movement has to coincide with the anti-militarism movement, has to work with uh, feminists, has to work with indigenous sovereignty, has to work with black liberation, Palestinian liberation, Hawaiian liberation. Um, we have to work together. Um, there's no way that we win individually. We have to have every possible um, relationship built and we have to fight on every single front if we have a chance at um, saving this world and if we have a chance at really dismantling like the military industrial complex, um, yeah, like we have to. There's no way that we move forward um, by operating in silos anymore. Um, the anti-war movement can no longer just be veterans. It can't be. We have to have all the communities that have been impacted by war all the communities that have been impacted by militarism have to be a part of that. All the communities that have been impacted by imperialism and corporatism, we all have to be in relationship with each other and fighting this on every possible front that we can. Legal strategy, um, nonviolent direct action, community organizing, and we have to simultaneously be building and creating the world that we want to see in place of that for when we do win. Um, otherwise, what are we working so hard for? If we don't create that, um, yeah, so we have to. There's no way that we win without that. And then I'm wondering what our learnings are as journalists, as message makers, as communicators. How do we, do we just have to be more on it and more driven about finding other stories and battling for other voices to talk about to talk about issues whereas at the moment as we've discussed we probably tend to have a pattern of doing things and we'll go for archetypes or what we know is acceptable immediately acceptable and not that challenging to an audience we have to change we have to change a lot is what i'm suggesting yeah i mean it's definitely not my work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but I, I think that's where it comes back to like that uh, principled work, right? Like I, I had recommended, um, you know, the, the advice and the, the three things that I had listed as far as like being principled in your organizing, taking care of yourself. Um, <clears throat> and I forgot the other one I listed really quick, but um like that applies to everybody that is within these movements, right? Um, everyone has their own roles in, in movement spaces. 
media and storytelling is not an exception. And so when I, I guess when I share that, it is not specifically for, for organizers, right? Um, it is for everybody that is trying to work for this better world that we're trying to get to, right? Um, so I think that in storytelling, you have to be principled. You have to have your own set of principles and integrity that you are working from. And if your inner knowing in, in your gut is telling you something, do that. Despite the template, despite whatever mainstream media is saying, despite what usually happens, because we cannot continue to operate in the norm right now. And if COVID-19 has shown anything to us, it is that we do not want to go back to the norm. Like we should not be striving to go back to the normal before COVID-19. Um, and we have to take that same concept and apply that to everything that we're approaching and everything that we're trying to address. And so, yeah, so I, I think I would just recommend that as like is listening to your own principles and following those, um, taking care of yourself in the midst of that, because if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't listen to what our gut instincts are telling us to do. Um, and yeah, and so I think that that's what I would say as far as like media and storytelling goes is to, to, um, follow the same path as organizers, <laughs> as far as that advice goes. Great. That's wonderful. Very and inspirational. Crystal, thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. And, um, thank you for doing your work. Like it's, it's really impressive, uh, and scary sounding, I've got to say, like, <laughs> <laughs> sorry it's, that is not funny but I I guess I like um I don't know I've never viewed it like that um and so it, it's interesting hearing other people <laughs> reference it <laughs> honestly Crystal thank you so much yeah, that was I, abs- I, personally okay. that was like a really incredible wake mm-hmm. up call <laughs> I mean I don't know I don't know like how you decided to speak to us but I'm really glad that you did yeah thank you um I yeah it, I, I was uh, like, as you were talking, I went on, I went to a lot of places in yeah. my head. <laughs> like, me too, uh, me too. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm glad. I mean, that's the goal, right? It's like, we're all in this together. So hmm. we should be growing together as well. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that was an extraordinary, I hope you agree, an eye-opening conversation um, with a lot to think about. And we'd, as ever, love to know what you thought about it and how it's made you reflect upon your world and your work. You know where to find us, or perhaps you don't. You can go to at SoHotPod, and we would really, really love to hear from you, especially about this episode. Uh, Next episode is about fame um, and the power of fame. Yes, we're going to be speaking to Ellie Golding, the pop star, singer, producer, and UN environment ambassador. It's, it's pretty cool. I mean, I'd never met a pop star before and we recorded this one before the lockdown so I actually got to meet Ellie Goulding. I was pretty hyped. And what did she say to you? She told you that you were cool. She did tell me I was cool, but... Um, she hadn't apart, seen the rest jumper. of it. The rest of it is very truthful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she didn't see the fleece that I'm currently wearing. Um, but, um, and on that bombshell, we'll uh, see you po- next week. <laughs> <laughs> see you next week. Thanks once again to our producers, Sony Fourth Floor and Picture Zero. And thank you to our brilliant producer, Natalie Jameson, and to James Deacon, who has helped out on this episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you found this useful, please share it with people. 
We want these story tools to travel as far as possible so we can all get better at talking about nature and climate. Yes, so hot right now. We are building a movement. Thank you.